0: This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. When darkness tries to roll over my voice. When sorrow comes to steal the joy I own, when brokenness and pain is all I know, I won't be shaken, no I won't be shaken, cause my fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand
1: Good stuff. Thank you so much. Um, Just quickly uh, wanted to let you know that we have uh, the new devotionals are in and and we're still a couple of weeks away, but uh, feel free to pick up your copy there. And um, Jim mentioned that uh, we're just getting ready to uh, close out our small group trimester. You can find the new lineup in your bulletin. I'm so excited about our summer lineup and uh, we'll be Talking, We've got a couple more weeks there, but uh, anyway, you can go ahead and be thinking about that. We'll have sign-up sheets next week. We are uh, continuing with week two of our series called After Your Last Breath. And we're going to be in a lot of Scripture today, so just keep your Bibles open. But Luke chapter 16 will, I, I guess, kind of anchor at least some of our thoughts today. Um, now, there are certain topics in the Bible that are on my dreaded list of topics tithing is one i hate to preach on tithing i mean i shouldn't it's a privilege to give and, and and the bible talks about money more than it talks about prayer you realize that more than it talks about prayer and um but but man that little nerve that runs from the heart to the pocketbook is a sensitive nerve and you get cranky <laughs> when i preach on money and so uh Ah, it's on my dreaded topics list. And another unpleasant topic in the Bible is the topic of gluttony. And I know I avoid that subject way more than I should simply because after preaching on that, I end up being the first one to the altar. And most of us, about 80% of us, should come and, and repent. Uh, but the topic that we will deal with today is probably the most unpleasant of all topics in the Bible And that's the topic of judgment and hell. Now, just good news, you know, we're we're going from hell to heaven next week. So you've got that to look forward to. But today we're going to talk about the matter of hell. Um, And knowing that I was going to deal with this subject today, I did not wake up this morning and go, oh, baby, this is going to be awesome. I can hardly wait. To let them have it. Not even close. I know some pastors, and, and I personally think they're whacked out, but there are some pastors that love to scare and shock through hell, fire, and brimstone. That's not me. I, I, I feel the responsibility to preach on this from time to time because there are around 30 different scriptures that deal with hell. Hell. But it's never something that I look forward to doing. And I've asked some people just kind of, to kind of cover me in prayer today because it's not uh, something that I relish speaking on. In fact, let's just bow our heads and pray. Lord, we've been praying throughout the week. Uh, and I just pray one more time that you would cover us with your blood this morning. Lord, uh Don't let me say anything that I don't need to say and don't let me just say too much and too little and all of that. But I pray that the words that would come out of my mouth would be exactly what I need to say and that it would be backed by your word and by your spirit. And so we're counting on you to help us today. In Jesus name. Amen. Now as we kind of ease into our subject this morning, let me again remind you of some interesting information that I shared with you in our first lesson. And we took a break last week from Mother's Day, so it would be two weeks ago. But according to a study that involved a fairly broad cross-section in our country, 74% of those surveyed said they believe in heaven. Which is pretty impressive. It was as much of a melting pot As we've become for other religions, three out of four people believing in heaven is is actually pretty good. Uh, But according to the same research, only 36 to 40% believe in hell. Which reinforces America's cafeteria version of Christianity. You know, I'll take the good stuff that that I like and, you know, we all like heaven. but, But then I'll reject the bad stuff that I don't like. And, of course, who likes hell? And those who do believe in hell don't even have an accurate understanding of hell. It's, it's kind of like the story that you've all heard, and I told it a few years ago. But we preachers do that. We tell the same stories over and over again the older we get. But it's like the young lady who was about to get married found out that her fiancé didn't believe in heaven or hell. And, and so she talked with her mom and said, I don't know what to do. He's a great guy. I love him. I want to marry him. But he doesn't believe in heaven or hell what should I do? And and the mom thought about it a little while. She said, you know what? I I think we can work this out. Between the two of us, we can convince him that both places are very real. real. When when you get married, the mother said, you convince him that heaven is real. And the future mother-in-law said, then I'll take care of convincing him that hell is real. So our our society's view of hell has become somewhat of a lighthearted matter. You know, at, at the very worst, we equate hell with having a bad day. People say, well, I had a bad day and it was just hell. But if my understanding of hell, as described in the Bible, is even halfway accurate, I think we'll find that hell is a lot worse than just having a bad day. Now, we're going to stay pretty basic. Uh, We're going to ask three questions, very simple questions that hopefully will keep us on track. And we're going to begin with what is perhaps the most basic question, and that is, why does hell exist? Or maybe I could just phrase it this way. Why would a loving God, and he is a loving God, isn't he? Why would a loving God even create a place like hell? Well, if someone asks that question, then it shows how flawed their understanding is. It shows that they do not understand the holiness of God. And neither do they understand the awfulness of sin. But anyway, let's talk about two biblical reasons why hell exists. The first one is this, hell exists for God to deal righteously with Satan. Now a lot of people think that Satan created hell, and so therefore he's the founder of hell. He's the CEO or the or the, the president of hell. And, and they picture hell as this big area with the roaring fire out in the middle, but along the edges it won't be too bad. And and they also picture that there will be cats everywhere, because you know cats are of the devil, and I'm just kidding there, okay? That's but but, but they make but but they think that as you make your entrance into hell, that Satan will be like, Welcome to hell! Where you can do what you want, when you want. But understand that Satan is not the creator of hell. He's not the CEO. He's not the president. Rather, God is the one who created hell. And one of the reasons... Was to punish Satan, listen to the words of Jesus, and in, in Matthew 25:41, it says, "Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons." So why does hell exist? Well, one reason is that it gives a place for God to deal righteously with our spiritual enemy, the devil. But there's a second reason that hell exists. And we find this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. It says, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of His power. So hell is also a place of punishment for those, as Scripture said, for those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, to set up the rest of our study, I want to take a few moments and unpack a very powerful story that Jesus told. The story has two main characters. It's found in Luke chapter 16. Hopefully you've got your Bibles open. We'll be reading from... Eh, NIV, sometimes NLT, but just follow along. Luke chapter 16, verse 19 says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. So let's stop here. There was a rich man. And this rich man wasn't just regular rich. The original Greek language carries the meaning that this guy was mega rich, mega, mega rich. He lived in luxury every day. And, and the phrasing in, in the original Greek language could actually be translated to say, He ate the finest of the fine foods every day. You know, for example, think of your favorite eating place. I mean, besides Simone's. But I'm talking about the most expensive restaurant you could ever think of. Maybe one that you might go to every 10 years on your anniversary, or, or, or the place you might request to go when somebody else is buying But but this is the context of of how this rich guy ate every day. He ate the best of the best of the best. Furthermore, Scripture also said that he was dressed in purple and fine linen. Now, Now, in those days, clothing that was purple made you off the charts rich. Because to get purple clothing, it had to be infused with a special dye. And and it involved an extensive process. And only the richest people had enough money to wear something that was purple. In, In fact, some scholars say that a single outfit of purple could have very easily more than fed one person for an entire year. Just one outfit of clothing. So we're we're talking about a man that was not just rich, but but as we say today, what he was filthy rich. He was loaded. That's our first character. Now we meet the second character in verse 20. Let's read. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores. Longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So our our first character was filthy rich, but our second character, Lazarus, was just filthy. He was a poor, filthy beggar. And and scripture records that Lazarus had a skin disease that caused him to be covered with open sores. And, And I know this is kind of gross, but the Bible says that dogs came and licked his sores, and, and I don't know for sure why, but perhaps there was a soothing effect to that. Now, Scripture says that Lazarus was so poor that his food source was the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Now, let me give you a little bit of background that helps this Scripture make a little bit of sense. And In those days, even rich people did not eat with silverware. They would eat with their hands, which a good part of the world still does today. I mean, most of us don't ever get farther away than Branson, but 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 there are many countries when they'd served me in their homes or even restaurants in those countries, the utensils were the digits on your hands. And that's the way it was in this culture. They ate with their hands. And and so after the meal, naturally their hands would be sticky and food covered. And they didn't have wet wipes. And so the servants for the rich people would bring in a loaf of bread. And those who had eaten and had sticky hands, they would take that loaf of bread and use it to scrape the food off their hands. And so this is what they would do. They would, you know, they were just kind of you know, do this and and get all of the sticky stuff off their off their hands, off their fingers. And what happens? You've got crumbs that would fall to the floor. So that's the context. Well, after they had finished rubbing off uh, the, the food off their hands with a loaf of bread, the servants would then come in and take the crumbs and throw them out to the dogs. Or if they were beggars, they would throw them out to the beggars. Now, I I want us to take note that it doesn't appear that this rich man was a bad guy. He was probably a guy very much like you, me. He he seemed to be a decent person. I mean, he allowed the beggar to hang around. He, He didn't have him kicked off of his property. That's more tolerant than a lot of us would have been. Plus, he was generous enough to let him have the crumbs that came off the bread when they were cleaning up. But a key point here is that despite the fact that the rich man seemed to be a decent and maybe even somewhat generous man, yet his good works, his generosity did not translate into salvation. And so in this biblical account that we just read, he finds himself in hell. Which makes me wonder how many good, giving, generous, and even kind people will be in hell simply because they thought they were good enough and generous enough and moral enough and kind enough to be allowed into heaven. Well, let's continue uh, to follow the story. What happened to these two men when they died? Well, we pick up the story in verse 22. Luke chapter 16, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Now, now most people believe that Abraham's side is the same place that Jesus called paradise. You remember when Jesus was on the cross, he said to, to, to the one sinner, you repented. And so you, this day, you will be with me in paradise. which simplifying this, paradise or Abraham's side or, or is it the King James Version? There's another translation that calls it Abraham's bosom. But more than likely, this is what we call heaven. It seems that when a true and genuine Christian dies, they immediately go to paradise or, or heaven. You know, Christ told the repentant sinner on the cross, this day, you will be with me in paradise. Now, of course, last week, we, or two weeks ago, we learned that we won't get our rewards yet because they're collecting interest. Um. So so Lazarus died and went to Abraham's side. That's the filthy man. What about the filthy rich man? Well, he wasn't so fortunate. The rich man also died, verse 22, and was buried in hell where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Now, this Greek word translated hell is actually the word Hades. And, you know, sometimes we'll, uh, just to not say the word hell, we'll we'll say Hades kind of jokingly. And what is Hades? Where is Hades? Well, Hades is a place of intense suffering. Um, it, It will be so horrible that our level of comprehension can't fathom the magnitude of suffering. But having said that, it it appears that Hades is not the final resting place for the wicked. Because we read in scripture later on that death and Hades will be eventually thrown into what is called a lake of fire. But but in the torment of of Hades or hell, scripture says that this rich man looked across a great uncrossable chasm separating Abraham's side and Hades. and, and, And he saw Abraham with Lazarus by his side continue to read verse 24 so he called to him father abraham have pity on me and and send lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because i'm in agony in this fire now try to feel the emotion here imagine the rich man saying please Let Lazarus dip the tip of one finger in water and allow him to place that on my tongue. Because I am in excruciating pain. I've never hurt like this before. I can't even describe the pain. Please, please, Father Abraham, allow it. Just the tip of a finger, water on my tongue. Okay, those are the two main characters. I'm going to ask you to keep them close by because we will come back to them in a moment. But I would like to move on to our second question. How does Scripture describe the reality of hell? Well, first of all, we know that hell is a place of unspeakable physical suffering. And, and, and Matthew chapter 5, verse 29 gives us a glimpse of that through an interesting word picture. It's kind of gross. So if your eye, even if it's your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And now It's easy to read through that quickly. Just kind of skim through that and not think about it. You know, Jesus said, if your eye, even if it's your good eye, is the cause of your sinning, then just gouge it out. And I want you to imagine doing this because we need to catch the emotion here. You know, for me, my left eye uh, is is the one that a couple of years ago had a torn retina, and so I've had a couple of surgeries surgeries to repair that, and and I uh, and I still have some blurriness in that eye. Uh, my right eye is my good eye. I- imagine my taking uh, my index finger, digging into my good eye, and just Ripping that puppy out. And once I get it out, imagine my going to the trash can, wherever in the foyer, and throwing that eye away. Can you just feel the pain? Well, the Bible says that the pain that would be involved in ripping your eye out would be more than worth it if it would keep you from burning in hell. If that isn't enough, the next, very next verse gives us another word picture. Matthew 5.30 And if your hand, even if it's your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. So, uh, again, to try to catch the, the emotion here, imagine taking a chop saw or a table saw just whacking off your stronger hand. I'm right-handed, so whack off my right hand. And in Christ's day, they didn't have table saws or chop saws that would cut a hand off fast, so it probably would have taken a little while for that knife blade to cut through the bone and get your hand completely off. But the pain of that happening, according to God's Word, would be nothing compared to the pain of your eternity being lived in hell. There's another scripture in Revelation 14.10 that highlights the suffering. And, and this was an angel speaking about those who would worship the beast. And and he said, uh, And they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels. I mean, just think about that. Burning sulfur, fire. The smoke of their torment rises forever and they will have no relief day or night. Now, some of you are probably thinking, you know, Joey, enough already. You've made your point. Quit freaking us out. You're scaring the kids. They won't want to come back to church anymore. This, this is not a lesson to freak anybody out. But but if the Bible gives us these vivid images, God obviously wanted us to understand that hell is not just like having a bad day. It's not just like having a bad job or a bad marriage. And if you have those, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not minimizing that. But hell is a place of incomprehensible suffering a couple more realities of hell from the bible matthew twenty-two thirteen. 13 then the king said to his aides, bind him hand and foot and throw him out into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth now most pastors uh, had let you know about the weeping and the gnashing of teeth but did you catch that hell is going to be a place of outer darkness you know some people joke say well if i go to hell i'll have plenty of company i'll just hang out with my buddies we'll drink some beer we'll hook up with some women it won't be that bad. Well, if I understand the Bible correctly, hell will not be a place where you can hang out with your buddies. Why? Do, do you know how they punish the worst of criminals in prisons? They put them in solitary confinement. Maybe you read on the news this this past week, um, Mexican drug lord Joaquin Guzman, or Known as El Chapo, he's been in a jail cell in Manhattan for the last 27 months, and um, he's associated with many, many different horrendous drug crimes, and and he's allowed out of his cell into another room. He's not allowed to go outside, but into another cell for five hours a week to exercise. And his lawyers are petitioning to get that changed. They say that's cruel, that's unreasonable punishment, and. And, and, and I've never experienced it, but they say that total isolation is utter torture and and hell will be that place of outer darkness with complete and total isolation. And, and, and there's one more word that the Bible uses to describe hell and, and it's used 13 times. It's the word Gehenna. And now the background of this word is interesting. South of Jerusalem, there was a valley called the Valley of Hinnom and those of you that went to uh, Israel with us, why well, you 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 can probably visualize where it was, and it began as a place where the pagans would many times uh, sacrifice their firstborn to a fire god named Moloch or Moloch, also referred to as moloch but but over time that valley then became a place where they would take the bodies of dead criminals and throw them into the same fire uh, but But then the valley of Hinnom further evolved into a place where they would just uh, y- you know take take just the all of the, the garbage and the refuse from the entire city of Jerusalem and, and dead animals and and so this was a place where the fire was always burning that never burns itself out and, and the stench was repugnant and, and it was said that often people because of the smell, if the wind were coming in the right direction, the the, the people didn't even want to go out of their homes in Jerusalem because of the stench. Well, the Bible makes reference to this place where the the fire was always burning, never burned itself out, and where there was a stench of human flesh, and and 13 times it compares it to the fires of hell that will never go out. Okay, let's, let's come back to our two characters, the rich man and Lazarus, and deal with the last question, and we want to get to the important part of our lesson. What are some lessons that we need to learn? Well, the rich man, remember how he was begging for a drop of water to cool his tongue? Um, something that breaks your heart is that in verse 26, it's as if reality sets in. To, to, to begin with, it's, it's almost as if, you know, maybe I can get some relief. If I can just get a drop of water to cool my tongue, if I can just get out of here But in verse 26, it's almost as if he begins to realize that his destiny is sealed and and he can't get out of hell. And and there is no relief and not even a drop of water to cool his tongue. And, and, And so after reality sets in on him, and I want you to notice a stark shift in what's going through his mind. And I had never noticed this until preparing for this lesson. But in verse 27, instead of continuing to beg for a drop of water to cool his tongue, listen And and we're actually going to start in verse 26 so you can get the full impact. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go there go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. So, So the rich man is learning that there's no escaping the suffering, but then listen to the stark shift. Verse 27, he answered, then... So he can't escape. No relief of suffering. Then he says, "I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, warn them, so so they will not also come to this place of torment." So as this man realizes that his destiny is forever settled in hell. He begins to think of his family and, and you can almost hear the desperation. He says, I've got a family. I've got five brothers. I love them. I don't want them to end up in hell like I did. And he says, Father, would you please send Lazarus to warn them so that they will not also come to this horrible place of torment? But I want you to listen to this response. The response is so powerful. Verse 29, Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, no, no father Abraham. He said, but, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. So so would you please let Lazarus rise up from the dead and go to them? and..." And he said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced. Even if someone rises from the dead. Can I just simplify these verses and put them in everyday terms for us in Cedar County? Father Abraham, who is representative of God, says, Mr. Richman, no, I'm not going to send Lazarus to your family. And again, I'm just trying to help us understand this in our context today, but I'm not going to send Lazarus to your family. And here's the reason it would do no good. Your family already has plenty of opportunities to hear about Jesus. They know other Christians. They they have the word of God. Here in our community, we have a church building on almost every corner. We have opportunities here. And so if they do not take advantage of the many different opportunities that are available, what God is trying to say, it would not make one bit of a difference if I would raise Lazarus up from the dead to talk to them. Wow. You know, sometimes I hear people say, well, you know, if we just see more miracles take place or if the church would just do a better job, if we could just start this program, if we had better music or a better pastor. If we could just get so-and-so to this conference or to event and they would come to know God. And God does use things like that. We must do our best to reach people and may God help us to use every tool possible. But... The truth is that everyone in this community has so many, 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 many opportunities in which to find Christ. And if someone goes to hell from this community, if someone goes to hell from this church, more than likely, and I'm not God, but more than likely they will be without excuse. Now, don't misunderstand me. That doesn't exempt us from trying to do more to reach people. We must, we must, we must pour ourselves into being salt and light. But in our community, I don't believe that anyone will have an excuse if they miss heaven. Now, why don't people immediately just run to Jesus? I mean, there are a lot of people that believe the Bible, they believe in hell, but they're so careless and casual about serving Jesus. I think one of the big reasons is because Satan has done a number on us. He's convinced us that hell is no big deal. And if hell is no big deal, then two things happen. Number one, people easily reject or disobey Christ and His Word with no fear of judgment. And and really, we see that happening today. But the second thing that happens If we come to believe that hell is no big deal, we don't share our faith. And especially if we come to believe that everyone in our community goes to heaven, why would there be a need to share our faith? So we say we believe in hell, but do we? Does our life reflect it? One last thing. Aren't you glad we're about out of here? Aren't you glad we get to go to heaven next week? But, um, but no, let me tell you what freaks me out about this topic. <laughs> freaks me out. As I studied this account in Luke, I began to try to look into who Jesus was talking to as he warned of hell. And let me tell you, first of all, who he was not talking to. He was not talking to the tax collectors, which they were known as the worst sinners. He wasn't talking to the drunks. He wasn't talking to the prostitutes. He wasn't talking to immoral people. Do you know who Jesus was talking to? He was talking to church people. He was talking to those who claimed to know God, but they didn't live it. Similar to the people the scripture describes Titus one sixteen. they claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny Him. That's a pretty sobering thought, isn't it? But I want to end with some good news. And I'm not wanting to take away the emotion and just cause us to leave here in a lighthearted manner. No. There is a hell that is very real. But there is a God who has made provisions and offered us salvation. And the question for all of us to consider this morning is, have we accepted the terms of that salvation? You say, well, what are the terms, Pastor? Well, if we confess our sins and turn from our sins, he will be faithful to cleanse us from our sins and extend to us the grace so that we don't have to be punished in hell. Instead, we can be pardoned in Christ. So t- today, I'm not wanting you to walk away scared and frightened because hell is awful. My goal for us today would be to accept the pardon and receive Jesus and, and follow Him in His truth. And, and, and you, as a child of God, you don't have to fear hell because you're safe in the arms of Jesus. And so today, know the reality there is a hell. But thank God, hell was really prepared for the devil and his angels yes the unbelieving will go but god so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but will come to know jesus and have their name written in the lamb's book of life Let me tell you what my goal is not. My goal is not to see how many people I can get to the altar. But my goal is to see all of us just make sure that we're right with God. I'm going to ask you to stand. If you want to come to the altar, you're welcome. I don't really feel led to pull and plead and get people here. If you want to come, you can come. But I just think that maybe right where you're standing, If you need to be pardoned in Christ, why don't you just ask Him? He is here with His grace, ready and willing to forgive.
0: You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.